Stephen bore faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished in his death and resurrection. And for that, he was executed. And Stephen's death was very momentous because when he died, the gospel haters felt emboldened to persecute Christians in the open. And so on that day began a deadly persecution that scattered the believers out of Jerusalem. Up to that moment, Christians in Jerusalem counted, numbered in the thousands. But almost overnight, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But just when things seemed so bleak and hopeless, we realized, didn't we, last week, that when man does his worst against God, he can only ever manage to fulfill God's amazing and saving purpose. So as the persecution drove the Christians out of Jerusalem and scattered them throughout Judea and Samaria, what was happening was, in fact, what Jesus commanded must happen in Acts 1.8. He said, you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you see that? And how encouraging is that? And as I think about this passage and realize the fact that, that the days of comfortable Christianity is long behind us now. And what better way to be emboldened in our heart and, then, and in our faith than to remember when man does his worst against God, all that he ever accomplishes is God's holy and wise purpose. So even as persecution drove the believers out, they did exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. They went throughout Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the world proclaiming the gospel. So the persecution did not stamp out the gospel. The persecution unleashed the gospel. And the very first thing, the very first fruit is, that, uh, is what we note this morning. The gospel comes to Samaria. The gospel comes to Samaria. Now Luke tells us that all the believers were scattered and they went everywhere proclaiming the name of Christ. And now Luke focuses on Philip and his ministry in Samaria. So we read, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now you remember that Philip was one of the seven men who were chosen in Acts chapter 6 with Stephen in order to care for the neglected widows. And we read in chapter 6 that all seven, uh, Stephen and Philip, of course, they were men full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And unsurprisingly, Philip's ministry in Samaria was full of the Spirit's power. And so we read, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was uh, being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. 
So do you see Philip was sent from human perspective, driven by persecution, but from the truer and divine perspective, because God's heart was full of grace and desire to redeem the people of Samaria. He brought Philip down to Samaria in the power of his spirit. And the spirit worked powerfully through Philip's preaching and miraculous ministries. God saved the Samaritans. And this is actually really exhilarating if we remember Samaria's history and background. You see, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And when the Assyrians took Israelites captive, they forcefully removed the Israelites out of Samaria and and throughout the northern kingdom. And they settled foreigners in Israel and in Samaria. And in time, the remaining Israelites and the foreigners intermarried. And in time, they set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim in competition against the Jerusalem temple. So the religion that developed in Samaria was a a heterodox, corrupted version of Judaism. And instead of coming to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God, where God commanded his worshipers to appear, they set up their own temple. And so by this time, there is significant bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. There is a history of deep distrust and suspicion. And if you also remember, uh, Jesus once passed through Samaria, and the Samaritans treated Jesus with such contempt that in Luke chapter 9, we read that James and John, they angrily asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It always makes me laugh, as if they could do that. (laughs) Um, But they were so deeply offended. And on that point, I understand. Um, Calvin so memorably put it somewhere, a dog barks when his master is attacked. And that's how he described his zeal for the Lord. So I, I get it. You know, these disciples, they were so upset and angry at the dishonor and the contempt with which Jesus was being treated by the Samaritans. And they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? (laughs) You see, the disciples, they were saying, Samaria deserved the fire of judgment. But God sent the fire of the Holy Spirit. You see, judgment is what Samaria deserved. But God gave them salvation. That's who God is. We deserve judgment. But instead of the judgment fire that we deserve, God sent the fire of his spirit. So gospel comes to Samaria. And the second thing we see is that the gospel brings unity. Gospel brings unity. Now, this passage has long perplexed readers and students of the Bible. And 
the confusion centers around mainly around two things. First, we read here that when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the questions that rise from this uh, are these. One, realize that the apostles were not in the habit of following Christians around to check up on their work. You see, the persecution drove Christians out of Jerusalem to all over the world, and the apostles did not follow after them to look over their shoulders to see if they were doing the work right. So why is it that the Jerusalem leadership, the apostles, sent Peter and John to Samaria? Wasn't Philip not enough? And another question that arises in this connection is, can a person be saved by faith and yet not be in possession of the Holy Spirit? Because that's what we read here. Um, they, the apostles, Peter and John, came and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit af- uh, after they had been baptized, after they had confessed the name of the Lord Jesus, and they had been baptized. And Luke tells us they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the question then rises is that, is it possible for someone to be a true and a genuine Christian, to confess the name of the Lord Jesus, be baptized, and yet not be in possession of the Holy Spirit? Are the Roman Catholics right? Or are the Pentecostals right who teach that this is the normative pattern for every Christian that needs to happen for every Christian? First, you believe by faith, And at a later point, church leaders put their hands on you in the case of the Roman Catholics. Or if you're a Pentecostal or charismatic sort, then you need to have some special experience where you receive the Holy Spirit. And that completes you as a Christian because it is possible they both say, yes, the details differ, but essentially the Roman Catholics and the Pentecostals uh, have the same mindset that you could be a Christian but not have the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit only comes when the church leadership lay their hands on you or when you have a special charismatic experience. So is this passage indeed teaching that, that there is a two-stage conversion? First, faith, salvation, and then spirit anointing. Well, the the short answer to that is no, and let me explain. You can see here that Luke himself is surprised at what happened because he says they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus because the regular pattern and the expectation of the New Testament is that when a person comes to Jesus by faith, they have the Holy Spirit. So, for example, we might turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, where Paul says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. 
Now, do you notice, loved ones, that our sin condition is so severe that unless the Spirit of God gives us a new heart and draws us and pulls us to the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from the indwelling Spirit and His grace, we have no capacity to confess Jesus. So no one, Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit has already come to be present in that uh, person's heart and has regenerated their hearts. And then we also might remember Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when Peter uh, preached following Pentecost, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So these are just two examples to, to remember that the New Testament's expectation and the regular pattern is that when a person confesses faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she is in full possession of God's Spirit. So what is going on here? For some reason, in Samaria... God delayed the visible presence of the Holy Spirit in those who believed and were baptized. And now let me say that again. Uh, The context of Acts, in the early chapters of Acts, is that the coming of the Holy Spirit was often accompanied by visible manifestation of His power. But in Samaria, God delayed the visible presence of the Spirit for those who truly believed, those who were truly saved and were baptized. Now, why is that? And this seems to me to be the reason. Uh, this, This is a pivotal moment where the gospel goes from the Jews for the first time to the Gentiles. And remember, Samaria has a dubious history. Their conversion needs to be established by multiple witnesses beyond reproach. That's why uh, Peter and John came. Not that there was anything deficient in Philip's ministry of the word and of power, but that the Samaritans' conversion, given the long history of distrust, suspicion, this is potentially a point at which the church divides and becomes the church of Jesus Christ for the Jews and church of Jesus Christ for the Gentile and the Samaritans. And in order to prevent that, God sends Peter and John who become the the reliable witnesses beyond reproach. And once we recognize the necessity, we realize that this is actually no different than when Peter, in a few chapters from now, when Peter is later called to give an account of Cornelius' conversion, he was also a Gentile. God sent Peter to him, and there were some suspicions and doubts about Cornelius' conversion, and so Peter needs to give an account. Or later, we read in Galatians how Paul, 
also meets with the Jerusalem leaders to receive confirmation, the right and the fellowship that his ministry to the Gentiles was both genuine and not in vain. And that is why Peter and John were sent. And I find something particularly beautiful in the fact that one of the two men who came to Samaria was John. Because, you know, in Luke chapter 9, John was the one who called down fire upon Samaria. John was the one who wanted to see Samaria wiped out, destroyed. But now, Peter and John, they become the witnesses and instruments of God sending the fire of Holy Spirit. And so the end effect is that in this way, God ensures the Jewish and the Gentile believers are united in one faith and one baptism. You know, this passage is not teaching us that every Christian must repeat this pattern, that you must first believe by faith and be saved, and then you must have some kind of a charismatic experience. If anything... This passage is teaching us that the pattern cannot be repeated because what is happening here at this pivotal moment is something that can happen only once. The gospel, the promises of God, goes from the Jews to the Gentiles. And out of the two, God is making them one. Now, on a slightly related note, isn't this so um, interesting and profound? Unless you've been living under a rock, one of the hot issues of our uh, communities and our society today is issues related to racism. How there is mutual distrust and suspicion between ethnicities, between people of different backgrounds. And we want to know what can possibly make peace. And what makes peace is that the confession that Jesus died and rose, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the possession of the spirit of adoption is greater than anything that might divide humankind in this world. And so note this, the gospel forms unity. Gospel creates unity. Thirdly and lastly, the gospel demands repentance. The gospel demands repentance. Now, I mentioned earlier that uh, this passage is perplexing because it raises two difficulties. The first we just dealt with, the, the apostles Peter and John coming to Samaria and this a strange event of the delayed manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The second difficulty has to do with Simon Magus. That's what this man is known, Simon Magus. Magus comes from the Greek word mega, Simon the Great. So that's uh, how he is known throughout church history. And this man, Simon, he was a big deal. Uh, We read that they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, 
This man is the power of God that is called great. Because Simon had long amazed them with his magic. Now, Luke doesn't tell us whether he amazed them that his magic was just simply some sleight of hand or something more sinister, such as having some satanic influence behind it. Luke doesn't tell us, and that's not important for the moment. What is important is that Simon had passed himself off as the power of God. But just as the spirit indwelling in Stephen gave him knowledge and wisdom that his opponents could not match, the spirit indwelling in Philip gave him power that Simon could not match. And Simon was so impressed that he himself believed, and after he uh, being baptized, he continued on with Philip. Now, as we read the rest of the passage, we realize that uh, there's something dubious about Simon's conversion. Uh, it's simply be- uh, because the New Testament often does not distinguish people who truly believe and people who profess to believe. It's left up to us to try to sort out the reality by seeing the fruit of uh, a profession of faith. But nevertheless, Philip, who had long passed himself as the great power of God, he saw what true power of God looked like, and he was so impressed, and he confessed faith, and he was baptized. And then this is where Peter and John come into the picture. They came down from Jerusalem. They laid their hands on the believers, and they, Samaritan believers, received the Holy Spirit. And Simon wanted this power. You see, it turns out that Simon was not drawn to Jesus. He was drawn to the power that he first saw in Philip, and now he saw that power in Peter and John. And so he offered the apostles money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands, you see that? Give me, I lay my hands, may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter's response unveils Simon's heart. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. There is a word called simony. Simony. S-I-M-O-N-Y. And that word means buying and selling spiritual things. And it actually comes from this passage. Um, a few months ago, a pastor in Missouri uh, became viral when a video a clip of him berating his congregation for not buying a luxury watch was widely shared. And he was heavily and rightly criticized. Simony. Uh, a few weeks uh, before that, a pastor in Brooklyn, another pastor became uh, viral 
when during his live stream worship service, three robbers armed with guns came in and relieved the pastor and his wife over one million dollars of jewelry during the live stream service. (laughs) And I'm scratching my head and saying, how is this even possible? Simony, buying and selling spiritual things for money. That spirit is alive and well today. And that was Simon's heart. Because you see, what Simon really wanted was to make a name for himself. He wanted the power. He wanted the influence. But notice what Peter urges him. Peter's words to him are direct. He doesn't beat around the bush. He says, repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. But sadly, we see that Simon was unable to pray for himself. And the New Testament scholar John Stott, I think he summed it up really well when he wrote that what really concerned Simon was not that he might receive God's pardon, but only that he might escape God's judgment with which Peter had threatened them. Now you remember earlier in the service we read 2 Corinthians 7.1 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. You see that's what we see in Simon not a true repentance not godly grief but worldly grief that leaves him unable to pray and that leads ultimately to his death. It's interesting, uh, when you read the writings of the early church fathers from the second and third century, uh, this Simon, Simon Magus, is identified as the father of all heresies. Um, Now, there is no way to know for 100% sure whether that's historically accurate, but this Simon has come to be known throughout church history as one who craves spiritual things for his own glory and namesake, who in the end could not repent and became the father of many heresies. Simon reminds us that not everyone who confesses the name of the Lord and and is baptized is truly saved. Baptism is a sign But the reality that is signed by baptism, which is cleansing away of our sins, forgiveness of sin, that reality that baptism points to becomes effective only when we respond to the promise with faith. And Simon may have professed faith and he was baptized, but his profession did not mean he was saved. And that's so important for us to remember because I have met too many people whose vain confidence was placed in their mere words and the fact that they were baptized at some point in their life. But mere word, mere baptism does not mean that you are saved. What does then? What can 
assure us that we are saved was simply, it is faith in Jesus. You see, it's the simple fact that you and I, we deserve the judgment fire, but that God saves sinners. You cannot buy this grace, but God gives gives it to you freely. I wonder if Peter was thinking about this event when he wrote in 1 Peter 1.18. He writes to the believers, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb and without blemish or spot. You can't buy it with money. We can only receive it as a free gift. And it is that that gives us confidence. It is that assures us that we are truly in the Lord, that we are His, that we are forgiven, that we are kept for glory, that Jesus Christ, lamb without blemish or spot, that He died and that He rose. And if our faith and trust are in Him, then we have peace with God. So loved ones, believe that and rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for instructing us today, both from the powerful things that you accomplished through your people, through Philip, through Peter and John, through many other devoted believers, and for also teaching us the deadly sin that gripped Simon's heart that led to his ruin. Oh God, teach us wisdom and draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we may never put our confidence or trust in the works of our hands, in our possessions but that we may find our peace and satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.